It is good to be here with you all. We are coming towards the end of summer, and I know, I don't know about you, but that's kind of hard to believe that we've been in the summer this long, and yet God has continued to move and do some pretty remarkable things. If you're new with us, uh, maybe you're visiting out of town or you're camping at the campground, um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion, and on behalf of our staff, our leaders, and all who call this place home, we want to thank you. Last week, we as a community shared with several people this amazing thing called Baptism of the Lake. How many of you were at Baptism of the Lake on Sunday? Can we give a thank you for what the Lord did there? It was so wonderful to see and hear the stories of lives being transformed by the gospel, the Holy Spirit, God's word, but more importantly, through a community of believers who come together and worship the name of Jesus. Um, and, and as we're wrapping up our summer series, I think it's important that we connect back to baptism in the lake. Baptism, there's something that happens in our baptism, in that the Holy Spirit, it's not just symbolic, it's not just something we do, but there is promises connected to baptism. And as we are coming to the end of our summer series called This Is How I Fight, it's been a series where we've spent all summer long exploring the battle in the unseen realm that the Bible calls the heavenly realm and that this is where the real battle takes place. And in, in our baptism is one of the ways in which we fight. It's one of the ways in which we partner and it's the Holy Spirit who does the work. It's God's word and his promises that do the work in us. And it was such a privilege to be in the water as so many came to take that step in obedience. Paul, one of the main writers in the New Testament, wrote this in Ephesians 6.12, and you may have heard this if you've been here for any of the series. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. While the primary battle may take place in the heavenly realm, what we see, feel, and experience in the earthly realm, in our natural world, are the effects of the battle. And we see them in the world around us. This is why our, during the series we chose to not just focus on what spiritual warfare is, but how the enemy attacks us. Specifically, what does he go after to affect us, to wage war against us, not just God's people, the church, but also the whole world. Now, here's what I want you to hear, especially if you've not been here for any of this series. We have an enemy. His name is Satan or the devil. And here's some things we've learned about him. One, he hates God and anything that reminds him of God. Now, that's important for us to remember because here's the thing. God is the creator of the universe, which means that Satan hates anything associated with creation. And he seeks to undo what the creative work of God's kingdom began in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now, because Satan hates God and his creation, it also means that Satan hates humans. Humans alone are made in the image of God. Therefore, he hates human beings and seeks to cause as much damage to humanity as possible. And because the church 
is the bride and body of Christ consistent of human beings. Satan seeks to distract and tempt God's people to disobedience because he especially hates the church. He works overtime to dismantle what God is doing in the church. You've heard me say this before. I got saved at a small Baptist church. Actually, it was a rather huge building. At one point, it was a very large Baptist church. First Baptist church of El Cajon in California. They had these huge, beautiful stained glass windows that surrounded the sanctuary. And when I mean huge, I mean they were probably 20 to 30 feet high, and they depicted scenes of the New Testament and had figures of Jesus and John and the apostles. Well, one day, we came to church and someone had thrown a rock through the head of one of the windows of one of the figures in the stained glass windows. And while it didn't destroy the window, it was clearly meant to inflict damage. A few days later, I was at school at Grossmont High School in La Mesa, California, and there was a guy there who, I won't say his name, but he made it his point to make sure that everybody knew he was a Satanist. And especially me and he and I would often have conflict, and I've told you guys this before, I was what I would call a jerk for Jesus when I was younger. I thought the way to get people to Jesus was to prove them wrong. I, that didn't work, by the way, just letting you know that here and now. And he would regularly taunt me and try and get into debates and arguments with me in class. Well, one day, this man, young man, came to me and he said, Jason, you know what I did? I hate your Jesus so much, I was walking by this random Baptist church and I picked up a rock and I threw it through the face of Jesus. And inside I went, oh, it's you. And here's what went through my mind. I was like, oh, I'm going to go back and tell my pastor we're going to call the cops. And this guy's going to learn the vengeance of the Lord. Yes. And so I kind of walked away and didn't say anything. And I later, I go to, to my pastor that afternoon. I stopped by the church. His name was Ev Lundgren. We called him Rev Ev. And I said, Ev, I knew, I know who threw the rock through the face. And it actually wasn't Jesus. That just shows how much he didn't know about the gospel. It was John, I think, John the Baptist. And I come up and I said, I know who did it. And he looks at me and he says, Jason, I don't want to know. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to that person and tell them they're forgiven. And more importantly, I want you to tell them not to worry about it because it's already been covered. Now inside, I was like, that's not the answer I wanted. Like I thought he was going to share in my vengeance, right? And and, and so I go to school the next day, and here's the thing. Ev caught me off guard. I was prepared to take a loaded emotional statement back to this young man and let him know that he was caught. And so I go up to him armed with the information that, well, that my pastor gave me. And I said, hey, come over here. I said, remember how you told me you threw a rock through a church, and I said, that didn't happen to be a church on the, and I named the street it was on, and I said, it would happen to be Face First Baptist Church of El Cajon, and all the blood drained from his face. That's when you really find out who someone really is, right? He realized he'd been caught. Everything changed in that moment, and here's the thing. Every part of me wanted to tell him that we had called the cops, that he was busted, but instead I chose to tell him what my pastor said. <laughs> 
I said, here's, here's what my pastor wanted me to convey to you. His name is Ev Lundgren. He wanted me to tell you you're forgiven. Don't worry about it. And honestly, I didn't want him to hear this. And oh yeah, Jesus loves you and it's covered, right? That was kind of the, the last part. He walked away in silence and so did I. And I, I wish that I could tell you that he was so moved by the gift of God's mercy and grace that he came to Jesus and became a Christian. And maybe he did years later, but to my knowledge, at least in my 20s, he had not. But here's what I realized that day. I don't know if God moved in his life, but God that day certainly moved in mine. This was one of those many moments... Siri apparently wanted to say something to me in that. Don't you love Siri? My pastor understood something that would take me another decade or so to begin to grasp. And it's at the heart of everything we've been talking about this summer. You see, our battle is really not against flesh and blood or against some kid throwing rocks through a church window. Our battle is not against a political party who may despise the church or your particular belief system. Our battle is not against a family member who thinks this Jesus stuff is a silly waste of time. All of these things are just rocks through a stained glass window. More importantly, my pastor understood an even greater truth. You see, the truth is, is that the war has already been won. And we already have the victory. That's why my pastor didn't need to seek revenge. At the end of the day, he didn't really care about a rock through a window. He understood that the battle, those battles are temporary. The war in Jesus' name has already been declared victorious. And what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are not struggling or fighting to win the war. Rather, we're struggling and fighting to be faithful, to stay on the side of Jesus through the war. Does that make sense? Do you guys track me in that? See, you're not fighting trying to win something. It's already been won. You're fighting to remain faithful. And when the authors of Scripture use, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use words like wrestling, struggle, battle, fight, these words are not about you trying to secure victory. Because if you're doing that, that's your effort, not what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. Amen? And so what does that mean for us? Well, why does this matter? As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we stand in hope that even though it feels like we're in the battle of our lives, even though we are currently in the midst of a war, the outcome of that war has already been secured and determined. Now we just have to wait it out. Now we have to hold on in faithfulness to make sure that we stay the course in the direction that Jesus has called us to so that on the final day of victory, on the final day of judgment, we hear these words, well done, my good and faithful son or daughter. This is why we're choosing to end this series on how the war ends. What does it look like? What does it look like when all of this, all of this fighting, all of this struggle, all of the spiritual warfare, how is it going to end? And how do we live in the hope of that? 
God used a man named John, gave him a vision in the last book of the Bible, a book called Revelation. Now, I want to be the first to acknowledge the book of Revelation is a difficult, confusing, often misunderstood, and even, quite frankly, for some, a kind of a scary book. I've talked to many people who are like, I don't like to read that book, it freaks me out. And what's coming next might sound a bit strange because, well, the truth is the book of Revelation is strange. And while there's a lot of disagreement among the church about what happens in this book, there is one thing that all believers in Jesus land on in agreement. It's that Jesus wins. All the other things, all the other parts of it that might seem confusing or scary or have, you know, there's beasts and dragons and all of that, there's one point that every Christian throughout history has landed on, is that the very end of it, it is a book of hope. It is a book that shows us how Jesus wins the war. And as we read this, I want to give you what most of us think how the book of Revelation should end. And I'm going to give you the new Jason version of Revelation chapter 20. And this is kind of, I'm going to sum it up and then we're going to read our text for this morning, which is in Revelation 21. But this is how Revelation 20 and how a lot of Christians think the book of Revelation, the end of this war should be. Satan is judged. He, along with death and Hades and all of sin and all the enemies of God, are cast into the lake of fire. The victory is there. Satan has been defeated. All of his false prophets, all of the judgment, all of them are cast into hell. And many would love just to see the book end there. Because here's the thing. If this was all about spiritual warfare, the most important thing for a believer's life would be how we defeat Satan. But that's not how God chooses to end it. God chooses instead to focus not on the defeat of Satan, but on the kingdom come. What happens when we live in victory? What does victory actually look like? Because Satan's defeat is, while that is the ultimate victory, the real victory is that everything that Satan did, all the damage, all the hatred, all the sin, all the brokenness, all of that is going to be taken care of once and for all, and we're going to see something new. If you have your Bibles, or your Bible app, or your Zion app, or Zion's Facebook page, would you please stand with me and turn to Revelation chapter 21. And if you don't have it, if you just want to listen, that's fine. Revelation 21. And we're not going to read the whole thing because quite frankly, it, it would be, it'd take a long time. But we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'm going to give you a second if you want to turn there. And if you haven't, I'm reading from the NIV. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give you water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery death of burning sulfur. This is the second death. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You may be seated. <coughs> if you think about it, these words are bittersweet, aren't they? That starts off talking about God is creating new and then after all of this, he says, listen, but those who are not a part of my kingdom, who wanted nothing to do with it, they're going to go to the place they ultimately wanted. See, God doesn't send people to hell. He gives them what they want, which is a world where hell exists. Did you catch that? God does not send anybody to hell. God simply gives them what they want, a world where God is not king, where his kingdom is not prevalent. That's part of the heartache of the gospel is that the truth is, the good news, what we call the gospel, is only good news for those who believe in Jesus. For those who refuse or reject Jesus, it's actually bad news. And every part of that breaks God's heart. Second Peter, it might be First Peter, reminds us that God desires that everyone be saved. That is the heartbeat of Jesus, is that all human beings would be rescued and be brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by putting their faith and trust in Jesus. The good news is that Jesus became flesh, God became flesh, and as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, listen to what he says. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, Jesus came to end the war by sacrificing himself as an offering of peace through his death on the cross. Paul continues in verse 21, but once you and I were alienated, we were separated from God and we're enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Now, here's why this matters. Without Jesus, without Jesus in our lives, without accepting Jesus, every single one of us here have been at one point enemies of God. And the way it plays itself isn't out just through our mind, it's through our actions. It's that we actually bring hell into the world that we are the ones who help participate in the spiritual warfare when we are living apart from Christ. Verse 22, Paul says, But now, through Jesus, He has reconciled you and me by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish 
and free from accusation. I love this. I don't know if you caught what Paul just laid down here. What Paul's saying is this, because of what Jesus did on the cross, because Jesus was perfect in every way, even in obedience, Jesus became what we could not. Jesus, he who was without sin, became sin that you and I, through faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. Jesus reconciles us. He was innocent, we were not. Instead of us dying, he died. Now listen to these next words carefully from Paul. If, if you continue in your faith, it is not about you winning the war. The war has been secured. It is about our faithfulness. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the, help, from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is a hard reality. The truth of the gospel is that what God wants for you and I is to hold on, to cling to the hope of Christ. Everybody do me a favor. Put your hands out like this for a second. I want you to squeeze your hands. Imagine for a moment, this is you clinging. What are you clinging to in your life other than Jesus? Picture it right now. You've got your hands out. What are you holding on to, hoping that it will secure you, but it's not working? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture whatever that thing is that isn't Jesus, and I want you to let it go. Open your hands when you're ready. Picture it dropping. How many of you had an image of something that you've been clinging on to that dropped? Raise your hand if you had that. This is what God wants from us every day, is that we are constantly being asked to cling on to the wrong things, to hold on to things that don't bring hope. And what he needs from you and I is that we open-handedly say, God, this isn't working anymore. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol or pornography. Maybe it's a relationship that's not honoring the Lord. Maybe it's some other sin in your life that you've been holding on to and God is saying, won't you just let it go for a moment? Won't you just hold to me instead? This is what it means for us to fight. The spiritual warfare, again, is not for us to fight to win the war. The war's already been won. No, what we're fighting to is to cling to the right source, the right hope, which is Jesus. As I look in my own life and I think about the things where I've struggled, here is a reality. Here is a truth. You are either at war with the devil and his lies, or you are at war with God. There's no in-between. There's no spiritual Switzerland. You don't get to be neutral. Either you are at war with God, or you are at war with Satan. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be at war with God. How do we move in through this? Well, I want to share with you a story that you might be familiar with. Even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard quotes from this story. <clears throat> it's found in Luke chapter 11. Jesus has just taught a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer. After teaching this Lord's Prayer, he goes around and starts healing people. The sick are getting healed. Demon-possessed are being delivered. 
And one demon-possessed man has a spirit of mute, meaning he can't talk. This demon has grabbed a hold of his voice. He's unable to speak. Jesus casts out this demon, and immediately this man who was mute can now talk. The Pharisees, who were Jesus' harshest critics and enemies, they accused Jesus of casting out these demons by the powers of the devil, specifically the name Beelzebub. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Here's why this matters, is that Satan is the Lord of death, and flies surround filth, death, and garbage, everything that nobody wants to be a part of. And they've essentially just said, hey, Jesus, we know how you're doing this. You're doing all these miracles through the power of the devil. You're not God, you're Satan. Now, Jesus knew in their hearts what was going on, and so he responded with some rather famous words. Even if you're not a Christian, I have a feeling some of you have probably heard these words before. Excuse me. Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? That's, a, that's kind of like a mic drop right there. So then they will be your judges. In other words, why would Satan undo his own work? What benefit does it have for the devil to divide his own kingdom and his own armies? Why in the world would Satan ever set somebody free from captivity? It makes no sense. I love this next part. Jesus says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This phrase, finger of God, is, is actually kind of fun. It's also used in a few notable places throughout the Bible. When the plagues of Egypt were the result, it says, Moses says, that it was by God's finger moving against Pharaoh. Now, your finger is a very small part of your body. It doesn't have a lot of strength. God's finger is even more powerful than Pharaoh. The Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. When Jesus, who is God, become flesh, they, the bunch of spiritual leaders bring a woman caught into adultery and they drop her naked in front of Jesus. Jesus drops down to the sand and with his finger begins to write in the sand. And no one knows what he's writing. Some people think he might be writing the sins of the people there. And Jesus echoes these famous words. He who is without sin cast the first stone. Jesus says, listen, it's the finger of God, which is small, is still more powerful than Satan and all of his demons. That's how they were cast out. That smallest part of God, which God doesn't actually have fingers, it says that God is spirit. He's making a point. Even at God's weakest, he's still more powerful than anything else in creation. Then Jesus says these words, and I, I want you, I hope, I pray that if you are not a Christian, or if you are wavering, that you hear these next words from Jesus clearly. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. I wish that I could end this on a super happy note and just say, hey everybody, Jesus wins. But Jesus wants us all to hear a truth. 
And the truth is, is that you don't get to be neutral. In this spiritual war, there is no neutrality. In fact, if you think you are neutral, you've chosen a side. You've chosen against God. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus is the only way in which this war is won. Can I get an amen? amen? Now I want to give you another challenge, and this is to the rest of us, myself included. There's another warning here. You don't get to be double-minded. Let me explain what this is. Double-mindedness is when someone who thinks they can play both sides. It's when somebody who thinks that they can love Jesus and love money. Who thinks that they can love Jesus and love drinking and drugs. Or who thinks they can love Jesus and love golf. Equally the same. Jesus himself said you cannot love both God and mammon. You cannot serve both masters. You must choose one. Now is there anything wrong with golf? No, other than the fact that I'm really bad at it. That's it, right? These are not bad things, some of them. Some of them are really bad, don't get me wrong. Drugs, alcohol, those can be bad things. But even good things, we can choose to be double-minded about. Jesus tells a parable in this story. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. In other words, Jesus has cast out the demon out of this person. They're clean, but there's a problem. Unless that person now surrenders their life to Jesus, that house is unguarded. And Jesus says, and now if that house is unguarded, when that demon comes back, he comes with friends. He comes with more more weapons, more people, more enemies to attack. It's easy to miss, but Jesus is giving a critical warning to all of us about spiritual warfare. God in his grace and mercy will sometimes bring deliverance and healing to someone who has not fully put their faith and trust in Jesus. There are some of you here this morning who want all of the blessings of following Jesus, but none of the cost. That you want all of the, yeah, I'm going to heaven, but I don't need to follow Jesus. And I have to ask myself that question. People love the idea of being forgiven, but then they abuse that grace and make excuses for sin by saying things like, it's okay, I'm forgiven. Yes, there is truth in forgiveness, but what Jesus wants is a single-minded, devoted follower of Jesus. And none of us do that perfectly. I don't, you don't which is why we need the gospel. It's why we need the good news of Jesus is that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this does not mean that a person is not saved if they're double-minded. If a person has confessed Jesus as Lord according to the Bible, they are saved. But it does mean they may not be living in the victory that God has for you now. God actually has victory here and now in that obedience. Jesus doesn't just want your heart. I said this last week. He wants the rest of you too. He wants your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears. He wants all of you. And if we take the words of Jesus seriously, Jesus is in fact stronger than the devil. 
And when we ask him, he will rescue us from the dominion of darkness. But let's be clear. This does not believe, mean if you believe in and ask Jesus, he's promising that he's always going to heal you. That's not how that works. It doesn't mean if you're an addict by simply becoming a Christian, you're no longer an addict anymore. To my Celebrate Recovery people out there, how grateful are you for the community at Celebrate Recovery? Because we need people to walk beside us because Jesus, victory doesn't always mean that we're, we're pain-free or that we don't have struggles of sin. Victory means that we get to live day to day and His mercies are new every morning. Amen? This is what we live for. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus is stronger than the devil and all of his demons, he can and will deliver. What we do need to know is this. When God offers grace, healing, or freedom through Jesus, he is also offering a choice to choose the side of Jesus. Choose this day whom you will serve. My hope is that you choose Christ. Either you are for or you are against him. You are either at war with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or at war with Satan, his minions, and lies. If you think you might be at war with Jesus, well, today is the day to end that war because Jesus died for you. He died to end the hostility to take your place when you put your hope and faith in him. I hope you'll take that step today. Realize that there's no such thing as neutral, that you don't get to play both sides. There's no double-mindedness is not what God has. There is one surefire way to guarantee you will not stand firm, that you will not hold tight, that you will not be unwavering in your faith, and it is to be double-minded or neutral. This is why we need Jesus. We need Jesus because we all struggle with split loyalties. And so Jesus gave us the caution. Listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. James 4, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is no such thing as dual citizenship with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You are either with Jesus or against him. So here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. If the victory has already been won, who or what are you living for? What hope are you holding on to? We are not fighting to win this war. Jesus already has that victory. We're fighting to be faithful through the war. If you're living a double life today, you might be a Christian but you're not living in victory. If you're living in a place where you're being tossed around <coughs> to and fro, where your life seems ungrounded, untethered, victory can be yours today. <coughs> Excuse me. We must be anchored to Jesus. The Christian walk is a struggle but you are not alone in the struggle, in the wrestling, in the battle for faithfulness. You have the Holy Spirit, you have God's word, and you have confessional community. This is why we belong, believe, and become is so important to us as a church. As we wrap this series up, <coughs> you want to know what my favorite part about our ultimate victory in Jesus is? 
Why don't you do me a favor? Stand with me. For those of us who are striving to not be double-minded, for those of us who refuse to be neutral, who want to love and live for Jesus, we get to bring a glimpse of what is to come. We get to bring restoration and healing. We get to bring bits of heaven and earth here and now into the lives of the world around us. But that only comes when we live in the victory that's found in Jesus today. It's only found when we choose the side of Jesus to live in daily obedience, to live for Jesus here and now. So I want to ask you this question this morning. What side are you on? Whose side are you on? <coughs> are you living for Jesus? <coughs> Where are you playing, playing it safe? Or worse, are you trying to say you love Jesus in one breath and then in another completely live against Jesus for yourself? This morning could be a turning point in your battle. It's a moment in which you get to declare and walk in victory in your life today. No, it does not mean life gets easier, but it becomes fuller, richer, more intentional. Because of Jesus, we already know the war has been won. But what if you and I now have a mission? Not to sit idly by, not to run and hide, but to fight, as Paul puts it, the good fight. What if our calling is to help bring more than damage control? What if our calling is to bring healing into the world? What if God uses our contentment, our flourishing, our worship and obedience to not just demolish the enemy's strongholds, but to actually begin to build brick by brick heaven here and now? What if that one moment when I was in high school, when my pastor extended grace and mercy to the kid who sought to bring destruction to a stained glass window was actually a glimpse of what is to come in God's kingdom? Now the decisions you and I make here and now actually matter. The way we live and participate in the kingdom of God, the work that he has are not just temporary solutions and benefits. They actually have eternal consequences. What if how we are fighting is actually fighting for a future? Because that last picture of heaven come to earth goes all the way back to Jesus' prayer. Would you pray that prayer with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to share one last thing. The book of Revelation shows us how the end of sin and death, disease, sickness, and war, all the brokenness are found in the world, how it comes to an end. But Jesus declares this after. I have made all things new. And the first thing he makes new is you and me. We are the beginning of something new in the world. We are not perfect. I'm not perfect as a church. We're not perfect in all of our brokenness and all of our flaws and securities and imperfections. 
God has called us to more than be soldiers. He wants us to be ambassadors and witnesses to those who are on the losing side of the war because freedom and victory are possible in Jesus. Amen? Can we just give a shout out and a clap for the Lord with all that God has done? We're going to receive our tithes and our offerings. And before you dismiss, I have one last thing I want to say to you guys once we're done. Let's just come and worship the Lord. Let's bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord.